live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. It's just mind-boggling, and it might not technically be illegal, but if it's not, it should be. The reality is no car insurance, no problem. Nuts to that. Let's get them off the road. Impound the cars. Make the streets safer. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. What are those people talking about? You got a deal. A deal is a deal. Stop whining about it. Live up to its obligations. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. If you want to see what I'm talking about in this first segment, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at JeffWagner620. Dane County has put out its own rules, set of rules for reopening. Now, around most of this state, um, we are in the process. We're either reopened or, by and large, we're in the process of reopening. Dane County has put out their own set of rules. I've got a link to the story. I want to tell you, if you were trying to be more difficult, trying to be more complicated, trying to figure out a way to keep businesses closed longer periods of time, you couldn't come up with a better way than in Dane County. I'll share this with you in just a couple minutes, but it's all these different metrics, and you've got the blinking yellow light, and you've got the green light, and you've got the red light, and you've got the amber light. I mean, it is something that is classic Dane County, which, by the way, really, at least as far as the last month or so, has not had an especially large number of COVID-19 cases. Dane County had several cases in the beginning of all this, but actually they haven't had a large number of cases moving forward. If you want to look at where most of the coronavirus cases come from in the state, it's disproportionately Milwaukee, Brown County, and then you throw in Racine and Kenosha, that that's where you, you see it. And in a large part, that's because of nursing homes and meat plants and things like that. But Dane County has come out with a set of restrictions I'm going to share with you in, in just a, a moment. But I, I was thinking about that and how hard it is, especially if you are a merchant in Dane County, how hard it is going to be for you to try to reopen your business and get back on your feet, given, again, the micromanagement of what is going on out there. And I was thinking about you know how that relates to other businesses, which brings me to the story of my new watch. Now, my birthday was, was Saturday, and my, my lovely and charming wife got me a, a new watch. Now, I, I'm one of these dinosaurs that, that wears watches. I, I have two watches that I wear. They're, they're both Packers watches. They're not a particularly expensive watches, but they have sentimental value. One was given to me years and years ago by my father, um, who passed away, and one was given to me by, by, my, by my late wife after the Packers won the Super Bowl 10 years ago. So th- these are they're not particularly expensive watches, but they have sentimental value. But I n- understand lots of people don't wear watches anymore. I, I do. I mean, and if I don't have a watch on my wrist, it's just I almost feel like I'm kind of naked. So my wife, for my birthday last weekend, decided that, you know, I, I should have a nicer watch. Now, I'm not talking about a, a, a stupid money, you know, a watch. If people have Rolexes, that's fine. I'm not a Rolex guy. But, but she decided, you know, you should have a nicer sort of watch to wear with your suits and things like that. So she, she got me a gift of this watch, and she got it from th- this jewelry store that we tend to patronize that is in one of the... It's in a surrounding county to Milwaukee County. So it's a smaller town, family-run jewelry store. We we do lots of business there. We we love 
love the people that are there. So she had ordered it, got it, gave it to me on Saturday, and it the, the band was too big. It was you know the band was too big. So yesterday afternoon we we drove out to the jewelry store and, and saw the the folks that run it again. It's a family business and you know had had its size. They took out a couple links and now it fits just absolutely great. And we were talking to the people in the jewelry store who had only just been and this is a small jewelry store on the main street in a small town in the the exurbs. Okay, they had been closed. They had been ordered closed by the the governor for, I don't know, going on a couple months. They had just reopened last week. It's a small jewelry store. When we came in, there was one other customer, and, you know, she left pretty quickly. So it was my wife and I, and it was two of the owners of the jewelry store. We were all wearing masks and things like that, and, you know, we were just talking. And I, I was just looking around this jewelry store, and I kept thinking, you know, these people have been closed for the last couple months. They have not been allowed to practice their, their livelihood and, and earn money. And and I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking around at this small place, and I, I've been there a lot of times, and they've never had, I mean, they have decent foot traffic, but there's never more than a couple people that are in the store at any given time. And I kept thinking, you know, if over the course of the last couple months, I was inclined to pick up, uh, catch coronavirus, the chances of me catching it would have been so much greater standing, you know, in in a Walmart or standing in a Costco or standing in a Target than it would have been in this small family-run jewelry store where, again, everybody is is wearing masks and there aren't that many people at any one given time. And I was talking to to the owners and they were saying, "Yeah, we were just allowed to open last week, and it's it's been kind of frustrating because, you know, we sell jewelry, and you know, if you you need jewelry, you you need a watch." And you decide you want to buy a watch, instead of buying it from us, you could go across the street or down the road to the Walmart or the Target or the Costco or whatever. And, and you could buy you could buy it there, but you couldn't buy it from us. And and there was this sense of frustration that was out there, and also this sense of did any of this really make sense? Because again, you know, we, we've taken the small business that wasn't likely to really promote the spread of coronavirus, and we had closed them down for a couple months, whereas we'd allowed the big box retailer that's going to have hundreds of people in it, um, we've allowed them to essentially have this advantage that they sell the same product or the same types of product that, that the small jewelry store has. And I kind of sensed the frustration and all, and I was really glad to give the, this store the, the, the business and things like that. Well, I was thinking about that when I saw the story that uh, Governor Evers has essentially abandoned the idea of trying to reinstate his own micromanaging, okay, we're going to have a statewide rules and we have to have these different metrics and those different metrics. He's essentially recognized that, that that's not going to go through the, the legislature. So, you know, he, he's given up on that. So we're not going to have a reinstitution in any meaningful way, shape, or form of the, the Badger bounce back, even though there's guidelines that they have. And I think a lot of those guidelines probably make sense, but they're not these official sort of rules that that you have and we're essentially now going to allow businesses and communities to start to reopen at a much greater pace and we're going to trust the customers and we're going to trust the businesses to do the right thing at least in in most of the state now like i said a minute ago dane county they have their reopening plan they call it a safe and gradual reopening 
I'm looking at this nine criteria in Forward Dane measuring the county's percentage of positive COVID-19 cases, the number of cases per day, the number of tests conducted, assessing whether testing for healthcare workers is robust, assessing assessing whether hospitals are in a crisis mode, counting the number of healthcare workers with COVID-19, assessing lab reporting, timeliness, contract tracing, measuring community spread, counting the number of people that have COVID-19 um, symptoms. Uh, and then they need to have various benchmarks and no patients being treated in hospitals in a crisis mode, the numbers decreasing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Um, effective on Tuesday today, non-essential businesses can begin stockpiling supplies to clean and facilitate remote work as well as continuing basic functions. They can do curbside uh, pickup, but again, you can't have the people coming in. It is this very strict set of rules modeled on essentially the Badger bounce back plan that the state Supreme Court has thrown out. In Dane County, they think they need to do that. They don't think they can trust the small jewelry store to open up and be responsible. They don't think they can trust the customers that might go into that small jewelry store to, again, be responsible. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need a return to heavy government rules telling us what we can do, what we can't do, telling businesses what their limitations have to be, and then measuring it to, I don't know, standards about how many people have this disease or how many people might show symptoms. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's really two ways to go. Most of the state is going the way towards trusting the businesses and trusting consumers, trusting us to know enough to do the right thing and to keep ourselves safe. There are some governments, including Dane County, which are going absolutely the opposite direction, saying, all right, we've got to micromanage the standards. We have to put our heavy thumb on businesses. We have to control what you're going to be able to do. Me, I trust the businesses. Me, I trust people to end up doing the right thing because nobody wants to get their customers sick and people don't want to get sick and so we we know we're supposed to stay apart we understand we're supposed to practice social distancing we understand we're supposed to practice these levels of hygiene can't we be trusted to do that 855-616-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line we discuss in just a moment if you're on the line please hold on this is jeff wagner this is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. It's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand why in the early stages of this virus we, we had these very, very totalitarian restrictions that were put into place. I, and I get it. We, we didn't know what COVID-19 was going to do. We didn't know how fast it was going to spread. We didn't know if it was going to overwhelm the hospital systems. We didn't know necessarily how to react with this. Okay, well, that, that was fine. This is, it's now two months later, and, and we know all those things. We know the hospital system wasn't overwhelmed. We know that there are certain groups of people who are most vulnerable who need to be especially careful and protected. And, and so we, we've got to adapt to that. We understand that we're supposed to wash our hands. We understand that to the extent possible, we're supposed to maintain social distancing. All right, uh, given that fact, 
Do we still need a totalitarian government that's saying, okay, these are the various rules, and we're going to look at all these different metrics, and in Dane County, you know, we're going to tell you what you can do. We're going to tell you when you can do it, even though most of the state is starting to say, okay, we, we trust the businesses to do the right thing. We trust individuals to do the right thing, and we're going to take the, we're going to take the handcuffs off. Joe in Evansville. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Joe. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. You're on the air. All right. Well, I was calling in. Um, I recently just moved here um, to the area back in January uh, from South Dakota. And, you know, I, I guess I have a different perspective. I, I think things should open up. Things, you know, we don't need the government control. And an example of that, I'll speak about myself personally. I have a wife that's 34 weeks pregnant, and having just moved out here, we haven't seen family since January, and we have family that wants to come out here and see us, but we've had to make our decision to tell them no based on the risk factors with my wife being pregnant. And I think for the most majority of people, people can make those decisions for themselves, you know, on, on what their risk they think their risks are and, and make the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, thanks for the call. A- absolutely. See, and I guess that, that's been the point I was making a lot, especially now that we know what we know about coronavirus. It's not two months ago. I, but I, see, I agree with you entirely. You know, if, if, for example, as somebody who is an advocate for opening up businesses, encouraging people to go out, but it, but yet trusting people to do the right thing. I mean, I understand that people are going to have different circumstances. You know, in your case, exactly. You know, if, if you've, you know, your, your wife is due to deliver in a couple of weeks, you know, congratulations to you. I understand why you might want to be keeping people who might have been exposed to this virus away from your wife. Makes perfect sense to me. I, I've told this story before. I have a handful of friends who are because of age or because of you know some some underlying health issues are in the, these extremely high risk categories and I you know it, it's kind of killed me but I've you know one of my my friends we FaceTimed a couple times and one you know we, we've talked to each other you know way apart when you know went over to, to his place you know that I, I would love nothing more than being able to go out in a restaurant sit down and have a beer and dinner with either one of these 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 two people I'm thinking of but I don't think that's going to happen for a while uh, again because in the situation if either one of the folks I'm thinking of had, had caught this it would sort of be a catastrophic type of thing but you know they know that so they're not rushing out to restaurants there one of my buddies you know he was saying yeah i said I'm, i think i've probably even forgotten how to drive you know i'm just in the house so sometimes i'll pull the car out into the drive into the into the um i'll pull it out into the driveway just to prove that i still you know remember how to do that mike and beloit mike you're mike you're on wtmj you know, I think it's reasonable for the government to act in times of emergency to protect the people, but only on a limited basis for like 60 days or so. Beyond that, mm-hmm. the American people never agreed to give up their rights the government is taking right now. I live in Rock County, and my county is still on lockdown. I never once voted to authorize the government to imprison me in my home. I'm overweight. I have sleep apnea, diabetes. These are all high-risk things for the virus, but I'm not afraid of the virus. There was a a nursing home in Texas recently where the coronavirus got into, and they started treating people with hydroxychloroquine, and 88 out of the 89 people in that nursing home, they lived. 
And mm-hmm. prior to that, the media was reporting this as an irresponsible thing to do. The FDA says it doesn't work. Well, 88 out of the 89 of them lived, and that was like the highest risk group of people that you could possibly have that's susceptible to the virus. Now, I, I can't go to the pharmacy and ask for this stuff myself, but what I did mm-hmm. is I did some research on the Internet, and I bought some Sakona bark, which has quinine in it, and I've been taking that. And, you know, I've had uh, trouble breathing for years. And now that I'm sort of taking this stuff as a preventative measure, I mean, I can breathe just fine. Everything's clearing up. And I think that if people just do their homework on this, you know, they're, they're going to be fine. And you don't even need to wear a face mask. Just focus on boosting your immune system. Well, Mike, I want, I want to stop. Thanks for the call. I want to stop you there because again, I, I don't. I'm not a doctor, and I don't. I don't play one on the radio, and I, I don't. I, the, 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 there's various re, there's various debates that are out there about, for example, you know how, how effective that is, and, and I really I take no position on it because it's it's just I don't know if it's above my pay grade. It's just a different pay grade. You know the whole idea of masks. I mean, I I, I understand the controversy because for weeks and weeks the CDC said, it, you know, don't don't bother. It doesn't make any difference at all. And then in part, I think because we, we wanted to think we could control stuff. They, they now say wear a mask. And, again, I, I have no issue with it one way or the other. If businesses say that they want you to wear masks to come into the place, I'm more than happy to put on put on my mask. There, there's limitations of that. I mean, it doesn't work in, in restaurants. You, you can't eat with a mask on. And if you're going to wear the mask, you have to you know, wear it properly. But again, I, I think it, it's the, you, you allow the individuals to measure their various risk. And the problem is, and this is what happened during the quote unquote, you know, safer at home stuff. You had rules that didn't make sense a, a, at all. And they're well intended. I'm not arguing anybody's motivations, but okay, you can have 400 people in the Costco, but you can't have anybody in the local jewelry store, the local luggage store or, or whatever. You can't have, you can buy flowers at the giant, you know, grocery store that's over Open, but you can't go down to, you know, Gru's Flowers and buy them. It, it was that type of stuff, that one-size-fits-all thing, that, that I don't think made any, any sense, and I think it's good to start to get away from that. Look, is COVID-19 going to be with us? I say this all the time. It, it is. This is just the reality. We're going to have to figure out how to live with this virus because it's going to be here until you get a therapeutic or a vaccine. And as we've talked about repeatedly, once you get a vaccine, people aren't going to take it. So it's all about managing risk. And do you need the government to micromanage your risk for you? Because the truth is, sooner or later, unless you're going to let the government shut down counties shut down states for six months or a year or two years. We're just going to have to figure out how to live with this, how to manage it, and that means people just have to be smart, taking into effect, into account their own individual situations. So bottom line is, lots of the state going one way. Dane County is going the other way. Surprise follows surprise. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It has been two months since the world was put on pause. What does the future of sports in America look like, and how soon before we can gather with our friends and family at restaurants and events? Join John McCure and Greg Matzik tomorrow. That was today, this afternoon, 4 o'clock, 
for WTMJ Cares, a special town hall where they'll be joined by Mark Murphy from the Packers, Rick Schlesinger of the Brewers, Peter Fagan from the Bucks, and leaders in the restaurant and entertainment industry. Again, that's today, 4 o'clock. If you have a question for the panel, you can give us a call, 414-203-8105. WTMJ Cares, powered by Watry Industries and Premier Aluminum, sponsored by Boucher Automotive, Emmer Real Estate, Elkhart Lakes Road America, and Gruber Law Offices. All right, I was thinking, this is the uh, this is the ninth week that, that I've been broadcasting from, from home. And I, I do not have an, an army of people that, you know, decided to set this stuff up. It's just they give me the thing and I plug it in. They tell me how it works. And, you know, I, I and then we kind of figured out maybe the first day or two, I have a little dog. And I used to let the little dog, let Sasha sit under the under the desk where I'm working from. But, you know, what would happen is she'd hear something outside and she'd bark. And so then so now, you know, she's confined to the downstairs area. But we, we figured that that all out without too much difficulty. And so now you don't hear Sasha if she barks when somebody comes to the door or something like that. It, it's really not rocket science which is why it has been so amazing to me that, that Joe Biden hasn't been able to figure out how to get this stuff done without every appearance being a train wreck. And this really isn't a political thing. It's more like, my, my goodness, what's going on with Biden's advisors and, and why can't they get him ready for prime time? Joe Biden is essentially taken the position that, that he's not going to be out campaigning during the, this COVID-19 thing. And you can make an argument that given some of the positions and some of the things that President Trump has done, Biden's best campaign strategy is just to, to stay away, to say nothing, to you know not expose himself to any arguments that, okay, he's, he's too old for the job or, you know, not up to the job. So, I mean, you know, Biden's just been like staying in the background. And I understand that strategy. But every once in a while, he, he comes out and he'll do, he'll give speeches, typically from, from his house. Now, this is one thing that you can control, right? You, you've got, plus, you've got all these different advisors who are around you. You know, if you're running for president for one of the major parties and you decide that you're going to do a, a speech and it's going to come from your home or whatever, you, you have the ability to control pretty much everything. You know, you can pick the room, you can pick how you're going to do it, you can figure out how the sound stuff is going to work out, and you have an army of people that can assist you in, in doing this, including, gee, you know, maybe if you're going to do this from a location, you want to make sure that there's not going to be any of this extraneous noise or anything. And yet time after time when Biden tries to do it, it, it turns into a train wreck. The the Another example happened yesterday. He, he's giving a speech out of his house to the Asian American and Pacific Islanders Victory Fund. Okay, so that, that's fine. He's given the speech. And it's, it's not the content of the speech one way or the other. But apparently, you know, what, what happens is he, he gives this speech and he chooses a room in his house that, that backs up on, on his backyard. There's honking geese. There are chirping birds, and apparently they're, they're, the geese are honking so much that it's, it's, it's a real distraction, that you can kind of hear it coming through. And the question is sort of like, well, okay, why would you pick that? There's chirping birds. Apparently there's somebody in the room that's got a cell phone that hasn't turned the cell phone off, so that goes off. The background, and they're trying to, again, get this kind of rustic background. Apparently there's like the Secret Service agent who's in the background, and nobody's thought to like look at what the background 
background is going to look like before the thing starts. So again, without any com- without any comment at all about the merits of, of the speech he gives, it's the, the setting is just like I say, it's it's a train wreck, and it's almost again like one of these Saturday Night Live features where you have you know one thing after another. And I guess I, I look at this and I'm thinking if you're trying to convince people that you are in fact ready for prime time. There's some stuff that you can't control. And sometimes when you're out in large crowds, you can't control the hecklers and things like that. But when you're giving, you know, addresses from, for example, your home, and you've been there for for weeks, this is one of the things that you, you can control. You can control the setting. You can figure out, okay, what are the problems going to be? And maybe... Just maybe the dog that might bark shouldn't be in the room with you. Maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't do it from a room in your home where, you know, the the backdrop is going to have honking geese and chirping birds that are going to be a distraction. And maybe before you go on the air, you should take a look at what the background is and you should ask the Secret Service agent to move. Or maybe you should tell everybody, turn off your cell phones before you give the speech. It's just these are the things that you can control, and it seems like, Again, every time Joe Biden tries to do one of these things to, to address people, they, they don't figure out how to control it, making you wonder, you know, can, can he get his act together as as well? So, and again, people are saying, oh, Biden can't do anything wrong. I mean, Trump is such a train wreck. Well, that President Trump has his issues, too. I, I get it. But if you're Biden and you're deciding that your strategy is going to be, I'm just going to sit in the, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to allow President Trump to just melt down. Okay, that, that's a fine strategy. But when you do choose to come out and, and make the public appearances, is it too much to expect that maybe you're going to do that in a situation and you're going to do it in a setting that doesn't make it look like, you know, Ted Max amateur hour? Just asking. Okay, we're talking about reopening the, the state. And we're talking about reopening the country. And, and my lead into this was, when you got to go, you got to go. But will you? One of the big impediments, I think, moving forward to, to opening up the state and getting people comfortable going into public places, going you know out and about on shopping trips and things of the like, I think one of the big impediments is going to be public bathrooms. Now, now, now hear me out. Hear me out on this. Uh, because let, let's face it, when nature calls, nature calls. And there, there's all sorts of things. You know, I, I think from the perspective of people's psyche, you can say, look, I'm, I'm comfortable, you know, going into, you know, that restaurant. And I'm comfortable, you know, sitting at the table, and I'm separated from, by six feet from another table, and I'm okay with that. And I understand there's a little bit of risk, but I don't think the risk is overwhelming. I, I'm comfortable going into the, the shopping mall. And, and walking through the mall, there's probably not going to be that many people there. And, you know, I, I can avoid crowds to the extent possible. And I, I can make sure I don't touch stuff, and, and that'll be fine. I, I'm comfortable, you know, going back to work. I know the, you know, workers, my bosses are going to, you know, put in all the different things that are probably going to make me safe. But there's one area that if you want to talk about something that's, that's really, really, you know, a potential germ fest, and something that, that everybody has to use, it's the public bathrooms. 
right? There's a story in the Washington Post, whether it's the mall, restaurants, concerts, ballparks, even drive-in movie theaters, Americans are making it clear. They won't be ready to go out to their favorite destinations until they feel confident about being able to go to the bathroom, that is. The idea of a return to life in public is unnerving enough for many people, but it turns out that one of the biggest obstacles to dining in a restaurant, renewing a doctor's appointment, or going back to the office is the prospect of having to use a public restroom, a tight, intimate, and potentially germ-infected space. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this a factor? that plays in your mind as you decide on your comfort level, you know, starting to go back out in, in public. The idea that, okay, you know, it, it's one thing to say I'm, I'm comfortable going into, you know, this place or, or that place, but, you know, what, what if I end up having to use the public restroom? And from the perspective of the businesses, I mean, what do you do to try to make sure that those places, which are difficult sanitary things in the best of circumstances, you know, remain sanitary. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, before we take the break, I was, there's a story about an airline. It's a European airline. But one of the things that they're doing is, they're, if you want to go to the bathroom on, on the flight, and you want to talk about, you know, this, those little tiny things on the airplanes, you, you can no longer stand up. Honest to gosh, you got to raise your hand. And the flight attendant will will say, "Okay, you can now you can now go to the bathroom. No more standing in line or anything like that. It's just you got to get permission. It's like you know being in second grade where you got to raise your hand to leave." Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How big a deal is the public bathroom, and how inclined do you think people will be? to you know, feel comfortable going to them. 855-616-1620. Back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, I, I live in this, this real world, and as somebody who very much you know, wants to allow businesses to reopen and, and, and trusts people to do the, the right thing. One of the big impediments that's out there, and it's something that people don't talk about, it, it's it's the public bathrooms that can be dicey at, 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 at you know, forget COVID-19, you know, using public bathrooms can be a, a dicey sort of proposition in any sort of situation. Then you add in, okay, you've got the public bathrooms where you've got people that are going to be, you know, I mean, you're going to be touching the water faucet, you're going to be touching the, the faucets, you're going to be touching the handle on the toilet, you're going to be, you know, touching stuff and and it's just in most places, it's not practical to have, you know, a special bathroom attendant who's going to wipe stuff down every time somebody else touches things. Is this going to be something that's going to make people reluctant to go out into public? And there's a number of stories that are saying, even though folks don't like to talk about this, the the, the, the bathroom issue is, is a huge one. Let's start with Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Started out with a little sure. dire straits for this section, huh? Um, <laughs> live in Racine County, been a regular participator in kids showing and grandkids showing at Racine County Fair. They have three major bathroom facilities for each gender, and they have attendance in them pretty much 24-7. Right. They're right. watching the bathrooms, and, it's you know, they keep them clean and spotless and wipe them down and that's those guys job they have a tip jar out there by the door 
and uh, they, it works. Never seen an unclean bathroom out there in 30 years. Do you, do you think that uh, that's something that businesses should consider doing to make people feel comfortable coming into their place? I have confidence in it. Yeah. No. Thanks to call, Bill. I well, I, and that I mean that that is one of the things I will tell you. A um, couple weeks ago, it was on a Saturday, and it, it's before the Supreme Court ruling. It's when everything's were, were kind of locked down, and we were just in the area, and I pulled into a Costco. There was a Costco that was kind of across the street from where we were. I need a guess. So I pulled in the Costco, and they had two attendants that were actually out wiping down the, the gas pumps that the guys were wearing masks and what would happen is somebody would would you know you'd get out of your car you'd use the gas pump and then the guy would come over and and then they'd wipe it down and then you'd use it and presumably after i left they, they wiped it down uh, again now that that's the first time that i have seen that but but they were doing it um you know most of the times when i put gas in my car i, I just have my thing a hand sanitizer and after i touch the thing i use the hand sanitizer and, and wipe that off and, and that's clearly i think what a lot of people are going to end up doing again when they when they use the bathrooms and stuff but this i mean it, it's it's a factor there's just no question about it 855-616-1620 that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line jeff how about restrooms while traveling by a car with remote highway rest stops and gas station convenience stores it's impractical to clean regularly without extra staff for that reason many rest stops around the country were closed during the stay-at-home orders. Yeah. Jeff, one big step would be autos, faucets, flushes, towel dispensers, and especially auto doors. Well, yeah. Matter of fact, in the story I was looking at in the Washington Post, that's one of the things that some businesses are considering going to. You know, the, the kind of like the touchless faucets where you just kind of, you know, where you don't have to touch the dials of that. Um the I, I mean I don't mean to make I'm not paranoid I, but I just these are issues that are out there the I, I was I, there's a number of things out there that say that the, the jet dryers that they have you know in the bathrooms where you you know you just you, you punch the thing and then the the, the air blows that, that those aren't necessarily good because they recirculate germs that might be in the air I mean it's sort of like a you know a darned if you do and darned if you don't type of thing um, and a number of people are saying okay you know we, we need to you know get over we need to get over the paranoia and and I don't I don't disagree that there's a degree of paranoia that's out there but I mean keep in mind you know we have we have people and I hear from you regularly who say that you know you're not going to feel comfortable going out in public in public until there's a vaccine which might be a year or, or two away well okay how, how is that person going to feel comfortable going out in public if you know it's one thing there's stuff that you can control Again, to an extent, if you see a place that's particularly crowded, you, you stay away from it. You can try to, uh, again, you wear your mask, all those type of things. But, you know, when you use that public restroom, it, it just it's a whole different dynamic that's out there. And this is something that I think is affecting a lot of businesses as they try to figure out what, what are we going to do to make people feel comfortable. For me, you got to go. You, you got to go. So it's not going to be, am I not going to go to a place because I, I might have to use the public restroom? Well, well, no, that, that's, that's just not, you know, I, that, I'm not going to live my life that way. But at the same time, I, I think, once again, you, the places that have, you know, an emphasis on cleanliness, the places that put this as a priority, I think they're going to be a lot better off. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Coming up in less than 10 minutes is Apple. 
the company, unpatriotic, and then a little bit later in the 1 o'clock hour, farewell to one of the most memorable characters in TV history. We will talk about that as well. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I'm going to send out a link to this story that, that somebody should perhaps forward to, to Mayor Tom Barrett about the, the Democratic National Convention. You know, I've been, I've been hearing all this stuff, and look, I, I, it's too bad that this isn't going to happen in Milwaukee. It's it's too bad. This would have been 50,000 people coming into Milwaukee, filling the hotels, filling the bars, filling the restaurants. Uh, it would have been just filling the hotels. It would have been absolutely tremendous. But, you know, we, we've been thrown a curve this year, and just like so many things are being canceled, the, the reality is these people that are holding on hope saying, all right, let's, we, we, we can do this, you know, we're still hoping to have a convention, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the reality is that the fat lady has sung. That, that's just the, the case. The New York Times did a story yesterday which sort of parroted some things that I've been saying off the top of my head for the last month, that that is even if you, even if you hold the convention, the reality is people are not going to come because you have delegates who come from all over the, the country. You have delegate, you have people who come from all over the world. And, and many and many and many of these people, they're, they are they're average folks, average folks who, who maybe have been laid off or furloughed, have financial issues, but they're average folks who... You know, at this point in time in their life, don't feel comfortable making a commitment in the next 60 days to travel halfway across the country and stay in a hotel and pile into, you know, an arena surrounded by 18 to 20,000 strangers. That's just the reality. So the New York Times goes out and they interview 59 delegates. And, and it's staggering. In interviews with the 59 delegates, almost all of them say, Sorry, you know, we, we're not coming. We're not interested in coming, which is the biggest problem that you have. You can, even if you raise the money and even if you find the volunteers and even if you convince the TV networks to do it, people just aren't going to come. And that is unfortunate for Milwaukee. It's unfortunate for all the planners, but it is the reality. If you build it, they're still not coming. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. You know, Greg Matzik Sports, that's, you're a horse racing fan. And, you know, one of the things, I think for most of the year, people don't pay attention to horse racing unless you're a real aficionado. But everybody becomes a horse racing fan on, on Kentucky Derby Day. The Kentucky Tur- Derby is, the, the Triple Crown is the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. And the Kentucky Derby is run the first Saturday in May. Then two weeks later, they run the Preakness, which is in Baltimore. And then three weeks after that, you run the Belmont Stakes, which is Bel- the Belmont race track in New York. The Belmont race is, is historically, it's a mile and a half. Um, the Kentucky Derby is a mile and a quarter, the Preakness is a mile and an eighth, and the, the Belmont Stakes is a mile and a half. One of the reasons why you don't see very many Triple Crown winners is the whole notion that it, it, it's so hard to have a horse running those distances in the space of five weeks. It, it's just that compressed schedule. And then, of course, the Belmont Stakes being the most difficult one with it being the, the longest race. Well, you know, COVID-19 has completely 
upended the whole Triple Crown this year because what's been in, what they announced a while ago is the Kentucky Derby, normally run the first weekend in May, is now going to be run in early September. Last week, they announced the Preakness, the second race. That's going to be run a month later in October. And today, the announcement, the Belmont Stakes, which is normally the third race, the mile-and-a-half race, it's going to be run June 20th. Um, and it's going to be reduced to a mile and a quarter from a mile and a half. So the winner of the Belmont Stakes is going to have, okay, June, July, August, two months plus to recover to run in the Derby, and then you're going to have another month after that to run in the Preakness. Now, I, I mean, I understand why they're having the events, and I understand why they're spacing them out, and I have no objection to it one way or the other, other than to say that it's going to make for a, a triple crown unlike any others. And actually, I'll tell you, it might make for an even more interesting sort of triple crown race because you, you might have you know, more good horses that now that they have a little bit more recovery time decide that they are going to participate. But in any event, it's, they're going to run it without people, which is how a lot of horse tracks have been operating now. There are horse tracks all across the country that are, are running races, but they're not allowing spectators in the stands. You might say, well, why would you do that? Well, it's because uh, the, the on-track betting is only a, a portion of the revenue you get. I mean, most people... Who, who bet on horse races, bet from casinos, or they bet on, at home, on, online, and things like that. They don't actually go out to the track except on some of those big days. So that's why you have tracks that are now running. They're, they're essentially empty. There's nobody in the stands, but people still end up betting on them. going to be interesting to see how all this works out. Okay, the, the, there's a dispute that is flaring up again between the U.S. government and, and Apple. Now, I understand that all everybody has been thinking about for the last couple months has been you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus, and we forget things. But let me take you back to uh, last December 6th. You may remember that there was a, a shooting at, uh, in Pensacola at the Naval Air Station. This was December 6th, and what happened is there was a, a second lieutenant. His name was Mohammed Al-Shamrami who was a member of the Saudi Air Force who had been training, you know, at Pensacola. And one day he he shows up, he starts shooting in a classroom, kills three, wounds eight more, and then he himself is fatally shot. And I understand it's been a while, you know, since that happened, but very dramatic sort of thing. Well, what it now turns out is that um, the shooter had been communicating with al-Qaeda operatives before the attack. Matter of fact, it now turns out that this guy had been communicating and was apparently in touch with al-Qaeda operatives going back to early 2015. And this shooting last December was kind of the culmination of years of planning and, and preparation for, for this. Now, how was the government able to figure this out? Well, they were able to figure it out because they had they had electronic devices. They had the guy's cell phone. They had his computer. And they've just been able to break in, quote-unquote, break in to the information that's in the computers. And they've been able to find all this other communication, you know, text messages, things of the like with, again, terrorists. Right? But this is something that, that's just happened. Now, the shooting happened last December. And the government's been aggressively trying to do this, but they haven't been able to get into the information. Now, you might say to me, Jeff, well, well, what's going on? 
Well, all right, here, here is the deal. If you own an Apple product, and this, you don't have to, just all of us, you know, you own, you know, your, your iMac, you own your, you know, iPod, you own your iPad or whatever, almost all Apple devices use encryption. And that means that everything you do, whether it's storing stuff on your phone or communicating with your friends, um, is encrypted. And it's stored in a way that only you and your passcode or biometrics, if you use like the fingerprint or whatever, are able to access it. In the event somebody tries to break into your device, they will find it nearly impossible to, to get into. I mean, I, I ran into this a few years ago. My, my late wife had an, had an iPad, and I, I, I thought I had the password, but she had apparently changed it, didn't have, didn't have the password, couldn't get in. As a practical matter, that iPad became a it became a paperweight because I, I just couldn't get in to access her information because I did not have the password. Well, that's that's the case. And what Apple says is, look, we we don't we don't have workarounds. We don't we have not you know created a backdoor to try to you know get in and to circumvent people's encryption. This this is just the deal. You know, if you're in a situation where, you know, you can't get in, you've forgotten your password or, or whatever that is, and you end up getting locked out, we can't help you. We don't have some magic little key that we can turn on and suddenly open the thing up again. We, we just don't have that. And they say, we're not inclined to develop something like that because we're afraid if we do, that's going to put everybody at risk because then all you need is some hacker who develops what our little backdoor way of getting into your machine is, and then, you know, then nothing's secure. All right, now the government is saying, Apple, you should give us your technology because we should have, in a situation like this, getting appropriate court orders, we should have the right to be able to go into anybody's phone and find out, who they're communicating with, all these different things. We And if we had done this, we would have been able to at least know six months ago, you know, what this guy's connection were to Al-Qaeda and maybe find some of his co-conspirators or whatever. Apple is saying, you know, we, we have not created this. We don't have this technology. And no, we're not, we're not, we don't want to share our technology with you. We don't want to give you the technology in our systems so you can, government, Go in and you can figure out how to break into our security mode. You know, you know, we'll cooperate with you. We'll give you access to, you know, as much stuff as we have access to. You want to see what's up on the cloud? Okay, we'll, we'll do that. But as far as creating a workaround for our encryption, we're, we're not going to do it. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should Apple be required to, to do this? And I bring this up because... Um, the, the FBI, you know, went after Apple yesterday when they were announcing the latest stuff that they had found about the shooting. Head of the FBI, Christopher Ray, says, we received effectively no help from Apple. Um, ultimately, you know, we were able to do it because I think they found third parties that were kind of hack able to hack in. But they said, we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to, to do this, you know, in the future. Apple, for its part, says, look, sorry. But, you know, we think that the worst thing in the world, we take 
national security seriously, we don't believe that we should create a back door because once we do this, it'll make every device vulnerable to bad actors who threaten national security and the data security of our customers. All right, should Apple have to have some backdoor technology that gets around its security? Or should they have to give access to their technology to the government so the government can work out some backdoor thing? 855-616-1620, that's the the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer, and you might disagree with me, my my answer is is no. I, I I don't think the government should be forcing private companies to develop security workarounds. Now, if there is a security workaround that a company has, and you get an appropriate subpoena, it's one thing to ask them to do it. But Apple doesn't have it. I don't think they should be required to make it. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I do note that even though it took some time, the government was ultimately able to break into this guy's phone. All right, we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think Apple should be required to do this, nor do I think they should be criticized for not doing it. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jack in Manitowoc. Jack, good afternoon. You're on WTMJ. Hey, how's it going? So good. What do you think, my Jack? Opinion on this, my opinion on this is that the government or I should say Apple, should not be required to provide that information or provide a backdoor, what have you, to their information technology for the government. If the government needs that information, they are fully capable of doing it already. They just want to make it easy for them and easy to track people that use information technology. I commend Apple for standing up to the government, and they should not be required to do that. The government needs it. They can do it already, and there's too much of that going on the way it is. So that's my opinion. Yes. No, thanks for call, Jack. Well, I, I, I agree. And, and, I mean, here's the thing. It's And, and look, you're, you're talking to a former federal prosecutor here. It's one thing to say to a company, all right, we're conducting an investigation. We want records that, that you have. We want, um, you know, you, you, you maintain them. So, you know, we want to see a list of all the cell phone numbers that were called from a particular phone. Okay, if, if, if Apple or any company has that information, if you keep that information, you know, and the government goes and they get whatever the, the appropriate request is, you need a search warrant, whatever, and they present it to the company and the company has that information, I think the company has, clearly, they have an obligation to, to turn that to turn that over. I mean, if I'm a federal prosecutor and I'm investigating somebody for for mail fraud, and I go to somebody's bank and I say, "Okay, I want to see the I want to see the, this person's bank records for the last you know three years," and here's a grand jury subpoena. Clearly, the bank has an obligation to comply with that and, and provide it. But that's information that the bank, my example, already has. You know, Apple has an obligation to provide information that it 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 can it maintains with regard to that cell phone. But in this particular case, and this is what I think is really the key, that unless they are lying, and nobody seems to say they are, they have they have made the decision. Hey, one of the things that we're going to do with our phones is we're going to encrypt them. We think this is important because we think customers want that security, and we are afraid that if we create these workarounds, what's going to happen? 
happen is that workaround's going to get out, and you're going to have all sorts of bad actors that are suddenly going to be able to, you know, break into people's phones or computers or whatever. So we're not creating the workaround. We don't have this. So it's one thing for the government to say, okay, here, you've got these records. Give me your records. There's the subpoena. That, that's fine. It's another thing entirely, though, for the government to go ahead and say to a company, we want you not only to give us the records that you're obligated to do, but we want you to create essentially a way to get other stuff that you aren't entitled to and that you don't keep. That's a completely different deal. And again, the the government, with all the, the really smart people that we have working in encryption and stuff like that for the government, you'd think that they'd be... They'd be able to do that. Um, Temple text, Jeff, the government is welcome to break in if they want to, but there should be no back door. It's a security flaw and a privacy issue. I agree, you know, completely. Um, Jeff, I, it's, I think Apple is right to hold on to their technology. Um, you know, whether it's the government or the hacker, nobody has that right. Um, Jeff, no, 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 never. It's one thing to get the information. It's another to the back door to Apple products. It's a control thing. Go Apple. Um, yeah, now another text says, I think Apple is blowing smoke. I'd be willing to bet there's a backdoor into everybody's phone or device right now. I, th- they say no, and, and the government doesn't uh, allege that. The government is saying, we want you to create this, or we want you to give your, us your technology so we can create it ourselves. And Apple's saying no. And, and I think this is one of these situations where Apple is correct. Does that mean that it might make certain investigations a little bit more difficult? Yeah, it, it does. In this particular case, would it have stopped the shooting? No, it, it, it wouldn't have because this guy wasn't on, on anybody's sort of wavelength, on anybody's radar, and, and that's a whole nother issue. So does it, make, does it make it a little bit more difficult, perhaps, to, in the aftermath of this, try to figure out what happened? Yeah, it does. At the same time, would it have changed anything? Probably not. Former federal prosecutor, I'm siding with Apple here. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. There are some stories, and I'm, I'm getting a number of texts from people and emails from people saying, are, are you going to comment on the, the story about President Trump saying he's taking the hydroxychloroquine, if that's how you pronounce it, And my answer is no, because there's some stories that I tell you I have strong feelings about and I understand and I have insight in. There there are other stories that I just I don't get. It's kind of like the jitterbug. They they just plum evade me. You know, I, I don't. You know, President Trump, of course, for, you know, a couple months now, or at least a month, has been touting that this this anti malarial treatment as a potential treatment for COVID-19. It is extremely controversial. There's lots of medical experts who say that not only does not this work as a treatment, but it also makes things worse. There's other studies that say, no, no, we, we think that this can be a treatment, etc. cetera. Um, there's also lots of doctors out there that say, you know, you, you would take this kind of as a, as a last resort. Maybe it's something if you're, I mean, really, really sick and there's nothing else, maybe you could, you could try it. I, I don't know that I've seen anybody that talks about it. This is just a, okay, we're, we're going to go and we're going to use this as kind of a preventive. But it's, it's a very, very controversial thing. And, of course, the, the people who don't like President Trump are out there and they're using, you know, his, his touting of this as an indication that, 
he just doesn't understand the science behind all this, and, and he's, he's trying to push all these kind of witch doctor quack remedies. And then there's other people who say, no, no, maybe this is really the, the key. All right, I, I don't know. I don't know. So yesterday, the, the president says that, that he's been taking this as a, as a preventive. I happen to be taking it, hydroxychloroquine. He, he says he suggests that he's taking the drug as a preventive measure. He says he's been taking it for about a week and a half. And, of course, this, this ends up becoming then this huge story with a lot of doctors saying, uh, you know, this is, it's not good. Under any circumstance, if, if you don't have COVID-19 and you don't have malaria, there's no reason why people should be taking it. So why would, would you be taking it? Which, again, I, you know, and I, I understand that there's there's all sorts of people out there that are, are thinking that this is another example of President Trump's excesses. Other people are saying, no, no, he's just trying to show that he believes that this stuff works. For me, I, I don't know why you would take any medicine um, that it's designed to treat a disease if you don't have that that disease. I mean that's that that's just me. I mean there. I mean I understand if you you know you take vitamin C because you you know you, it keeps you healthier and maybe people believe that 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 wards off colds or, or things like that. So I understand that t- people take vitamins. This is by in large it, it's a it's a treatment. It's an anti-malarial treatment. So I don't understand why somebody why you would take this if you don't need to take it. And he's saying it, it might be a preventive. I, I don't know. A lot of doctors are saying that this is just kind of risky. I just lump it into the category of saying I, I don't get it one way or the other. I, and I, I don't understand why the president would be taking it, and I don't understand why, even if he is taking it, the president would feel that he should necessarily share that with everybody. This might be one of those where you j- just kind of you know, keep it. Keep it to yourself, and maybe, you know, if, if you've taken it for a few months, and then you can say, oh, I've been on this treatment for a while, and I, I, I think it's great. But at the same time, it, it just, again, it, it's one of these things that is a, a huge distraction. I don't understand why you would take a preventive, why, why you take something, again, that's a treatment when you don't have the underlying condition. But, again, that's, that's just me. All right, let us switch gears. You don't want to spend more time than that talking about President Trump and what medication he might be taking. If you are a regular listener of this program, you know I am I am a huge fan of pop culture. I, I grew up watching TV and listening to music and listening to the radio and things like that, and I have a fascination, uh, an absolute fascination with it. One of the shows that, I don't remember the show Leave it to Beaver. I, I was too young to remember really that the show Leave it to Beaver when it was on when it was on originally, because it ran from six years, 1957 to 1963. But I, I sure remember Leave it to Beaver after that, because Leave it to Beaver is one of the shows that got you know sold into syndication. And, I mean, when, when I was growing up, they, they, it seemed to me that, that there was never a time that Leave it to Beaver was not off the air. And Leave it to Beaver, of course, you know, had this timeless appeal. It's still on the air. You know, it's still on the air today. You know, and it was uh, obviously a very Norman Rockwell view of America, <clears throat> but you had Ward and you had June, who were the mom and dad, and then you had the older brother, Wally, and then you had Jerry Mathers, who, who played the beaver, who was the kid that was always kind of getting into trouble. 
but it all ended up well at, at the end of you know the half hour. You know, Beaver would do stupid things, and then you know Ward would sit him down, and Beaver would learn his lesson. There was a little bit of moral, but I, but I think what happened is a lot of people kind of could could sort of relate to that, or they wanted that kind of family or whatever. And Leave It to Beaver had lots of indelible characters. You know, there were of course the dad, mom, Ward and June. There was the older brother Wally, uh, played by Tony Dow, and there was Jerry Mathers who played the Beaver. And then you had the the whole group of, of friends, the, the kids. Each had each had various friends, and probably the most memorable friend, and certainly perhaps arguably one of the most memorable TV characters of all time, was Wally's best friend, Eddie Haskell. <clears throat> Everybody in their life knows an Eddie Haskell. Eddie Haskell was the kid who was kind of the troublemaker, but at the same time he was, was also... The, the guy that would suck up to the parents, well, good day, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver. Mrs. Cleaver, you're looking particularly attractive in that. And then he would be the one who behind him was kind of a sneaky sort of guy who was, you know, the, the troublemaker. And it was just an incredibly memorable character. And the Eddie Haskell character was <clears throat> was one of the characters they used to set a lot of the plots in, in motion. He'd come up with the idea, and then the other ones would go along with it, and then you're kind of off to, to the races. Eddie Haskell was played by a guy named Ken Osmond. Ken Osmond died yesterday at, at the age of, of 76. He played Eddie Haskell for six years, six years of the show, 1957 to 1963. And essentially after that, he was so identified as Eddie Haskell that, that he could not get another job in acting. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I sent out a couple stories on him yesterday. And, and if, you look, if you look at him from his recent photographs, he, he was in his 70s. He still looks like he looked when, you know, he was in, in high school. He graduated, He was in high school when he was playing this role. He, he, he's one of the, I mean, sometimes, you know, people's looks change dramatically from, you know, when they were younger to when they get older to the point that they're almost not recognizable. Nope. This guy, he looked like Eddie Haskell at the age of 70-something, just like he looked when he was playing the role when he was 15 or 16 or whatever he was. But he was incredibly... Typecast, so he, he wanted to be an actor, and he kept trying to get parts. And you know, after the Beaver show ended, he was able to to get you know occasional guest shots, but he he wasn't able to go anywhere because he said every time I walked into these casting directors, they'd look and they'd see Eddie Haskell, and you know they'd say, "We're I'm sorry, we, we can't hire you for this role because everybody's going to see Eddie Haskell." So ultimately, he ended up uh, like flying helicopters, and then he became a uh, police officer for the LAPD, and was actually he got shot, you know not killed he, he got shot um back in the 80s and he ended up retiring but he you know his he was eddie haskell till the day he died back in the 90s disney did a revival of beaver and, and he he played sort of an adult version of eddie haskell and two of his kids played his kids so there was kind of like the, this irony that was there but he really never got any sort of acting roles beyond the, the eddie haskell role because he had created this memorable character. And one of the things I said yesterday in my text is I said, you know, no matter what Ken Osmond did in his life, he was always going to be remembered as Eddie Haskell. And on the one hand, I guess that's a curse. But at the same time, there, there are probably worse things, if you're an actor, than being remembered for creating an absolutely unforgettable character. I mean, think of, think of the other supporting characters in Leave it to Beaver. There was Gilbert, there was Whitey, there was Larry, there was Lumpy. All those people, eh, you know, you, you, you don't think of, of those characters. 
Eddie Haskell, everybody knows. And, and yeah, it was probably a blessing. It was probably a curse as well. I want to have a little fun in this segment of the program. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You can argue, like I say, that... That, that Eddie Haskell was most was one of the most memorable characters in TV history. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If it's not going to be Eddie Haskell, who's one of the most memorable characters? Who is the most memorable character? Drama, comedy, male, female. Who's the most memorable character in TV history? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, and it's interesting. You look at the people from Leave it to Beaver, they, they changed over the years. Jerry Mathers looks radically different. I mean, you, you can see the younger kid, but he looks radically different. Tony Dow played Wally, same sort of thing. You can tell, okay, well, I, I kind of see that. Eddie Haskell, he looked the same. Ken Osmond, he just never, never outgrew that. But he created a memorable character, Who's your most memorable TV character? 855-616-1620. Kind of my tribute to Leave it to Beaver. Back with your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Touched a nerve with this one. All right, the most memorable TV character, Eddie Haskell, course certainly in the top five or ten jeff in omro jeff you're first good afternoon yes jeff a uh, long time listener first time caller uh, i would vote for eddie haskell too but i think barney fife from the eddie griffith show is certainly an equal if not greater character yeah don not thanks for calling jeff no don, don Knotts created this incredible character he played he played barney fife for five years and then went on to do other things but you know that all the other stuff he did afterwards whether it was the the movies that he he made in the, the 60s and stuff and then i mean he was on three's company for a while it was one of those things where every time you saw don Knotts after that you you saw barney fife <laughs> you know now now don Knotts was such a great and talented comedian that he was able to you know carve out a a, a career you know playing the supporting roles but he was always going to be typecast as barney fife just like ken osmond was always going to be eddie haskell but great character you're right frank and racine frank you're on wtmj good afternoon good afternoon jeff how about the okay. fans henry winkler oh henry you know it's Last week, on, on uh, I think on PBS, or it was on ABC, they did this two-hour special on, on Gary Marshall, who was the producer who developed Happy Days and stuff. And I, I saw they did, mm-hmm. had an extensive interview with Henry Winkler talking about how that role was created and how Gary Marshall helped him create it. And that was, you know, for people who were in the 70s and stuff, that was just, that, that show was just amazing. And you're right, you don't think of Happy Days without thinking of the Fonz. And every time you think see Henry Winkler, that's the first person or character you think of is the fire. It is, no it is. No, thanks for calling. You know, it's so funny that the T V show Happy Days, of course, set in Milwaukee, that when they originally made the show, it, the um Ron Howard, the Richie Cunningham character, he, he was going to be the, the principal character, and it was going to be set around the family. And then once they introduced the, the Henry Winkler character, the Fonz, was supposed to be this kind of sort of secondary character, and, and Henry Winkler just took off. And, and the show's popularity took off once they started featuring him. Um, 855-616-1620. Dennis in Milwaukee. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. 
Uh, Leave I, It to Beaver will be always be one of my favorite TV shows, and uh, Ken Osmond is Eddie Haskell, one of my favorite characters. But in answer to your question, I told your screener, uh, David Jansen, who starred in the Fugitive TV series right. from 63 to 67, and maybe that's because he died so young. Now, I thought of another character who's kind of typecast, George Reeves from the old Superman, Superman. TV series. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thank. Yeah. thank no. Thanks for calling, Dennis. You're right. And, and again, that's that's way before my time. But you know, you probably a lot of people have probably seen that old Superman TV show on it. Star George Reeves. Matter of fact, there's a couple movies that have been made about this. Um, I think the movie they made is called Hollywood Land. I think. But I mean, George Reeves, who was this big star as Superman, and then you know he was up for a role in in uh, to to from here to eternity. And, you know, they, they, they cast him and they just started doing these tests and everybody saw Superman. They, they just couldn't look and see the actor that was there. So, I mean, it kind of is a problem. At the same time, uh, it, there's perhaps worse things to do than to create an incredibly, you know, memorable character. Let's talk to Lucy in Milwaukee. Lucy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Radar. Hi. Oh, Radar. Gary Burkhoff from MASH. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he lasted the longest. He, he suffered the typecasting curse, too. But I still think about Radar. I mean, he did everything, and he was from Ottumwa, Iowa. Remember the teddy bear? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and yep. There's, yep. Still yep. Memes, there's still memes going around on the Internet. One, one that I saw, um, a picture of Radar at his desk, saying, and it was about the COVID-19 crisis and when we didn't have ventilators or PPE, and it said <laughs> if we had Radar, he'd have this solved in five minutes. There you go. Now, th- thanks for calling, yeah. Lucy. You know, it's interesting. And, of course, um, Gary Burkhoff, who played Radar on MASH, he was the only actor. I'm not positive, but I'm about to say this. He, he played Radar in the movie. I mean, MASH, of course, the TV show that ran like 12 or 13 or 14 years or however long it ran, um, he, it was, was based on the, the movie. And um, Gary Burkhoff played Radar in the movie, and he was the only actor who made the transition. They, they had the same characters from the movie to the TV show, but he was the only one that ended up making that transition. And, of course, very memorable character. All right, we got a ton of texts here. Radar O'Reilly. Um, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Eddie Haskell is the only thing cool about Leave it to Beaver. Well, that, that could be. Barney, we- Barney Fife and Lucy Ricardo. John Banner as Sergeant Schultz. Um, let's see. Um, Hawkeye Pierce from MASH. Let's see, um, Archie Bunker, Gomer Pyle, Bob Denver as Gilligan. You know, that's another one. When, whenever you saw Bob, De- Gilligan's Island was on for three years. And, you know, and Bob Denver had done other things. He was on the Loves of Dobie Gillis. He played a character called Maynard G. Krebs. But, but after he did Gilligan for those three years, Bob Denver was, was just Gilligan forever. And, and of course, he, he kind of embraced it. You know, some, some of these actors sort of, you know, they, they fight it, they resent it. Others, I think, just sort of, embrace it and recognize okay we're, we're going to be making our living doing card shows and stuff william shatner for captain kirk he he you know he fought that typecasting for years and years and then finally recognized that you can make a bunch of money doing that let's see gilligan and the rest of the group norm from cheers no question about that ralph cramden the Fonz. um yep 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 let's see tony soprano well, that that's certainly an incredible character, Jack Webb, Joe Friday um, from uh, Dragnet, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, of course, Ed O'Neill, 
the Al Bundy character from Married with Children. Uh, a lot of for Lucille Ball, a lot of from the Fonz, Walter White, of course. Um, that's, you know, for, for younger generations, um, the, that one is certainly the, the Walter White character, um, is the Brian Cranston, created by Brian Cranston. That's certainly going to be one that carries a, a lot of weight as well. Gilligan and the Skipper, all sorts of folks that are out there. Bottom line is, again, I, I go back to my basic premise that there's probably, there's probably worse things that could happen to you than being typecast for creating just an indelible, unforgettable character. Rick in Burlington. Burlington. Hi, Rick. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock. Oh. Uh, yeah. That was one I haven't heard uh, callers call in. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, and that, that's another one. I mean, every after, time you watch after, that one. Yeah, and, and every after that, that after Star Trek ended as the TV show, I mean, anything he tried to do, I mean, every once in a while, I would see him. Sh- he would pop up as like guest stars on shows and stuff, and you'd look at it, and you'd you you wouldn't see Leonard Nimoy. You would see that's Mr. Spock. <laughs> you know, it's just that that was just how he related. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. You know, a number of people are saying Archie Bunker from All in the Family, um, and that it, it's kind of interesting because. That, that, of course, Carol O'Connor was the actor who played him. Before he became Archie Bunker, and he really did become Archie Bunker, he, he just had done so many different things. Um, I was watching the movie, the Clint Eastwood movie, Kelly's Heroes, the other day, and, and Carol O'Connor plays the, the general in that, kind of this over-the-top sort of character. So I, I guess I, I think Archie Bunker is an unforgettable character. I don't know that Carol O'Connor necessarily got typecast in that role. He did other things as well. But there, there's no question. Um you know, you have these characters that they hit. Henry Winkler, classic example of that. He, whatever else he did after Happy Days, he was always going to be the Fonz. Ken Osmond, also known as Eddie Haskell, passes away at the age of 76. Sail on. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I am so glad to have you with me. All right. We have been, as a country, as a state, as communities, we have been pretty much shut down for the course of the last couple couple months as we try to grapple with COVID-19, the economic cost has been incredible. You know, you, you have in Wisconsin alone, what, in the neighborhood of half a million people who've been unemployed, who've had to file for unemployment. Um, as, as we kind of dig our way out of this, this mess, there's a, a lot of businesses that aren't going to reopen. If you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 I just sent out a tweet. There's a story about a, a restaurant in Okachi that, that just closed. And my, my note was, it's not the first, and it's probably not going to be the last. And they said, no, it was just coronavirus. We couldn't, we, we couldn't make a go of it. You know, with just trying to do carry out, etc. And I know whether it's restaurants or small businesses, there, there's going to be a lot of them. Or large businesses, they're going to be like that too. J.C. Penney's, which was kind of a financial train wreck even before all this happened, um, they're going into bankruptcy and they're announcing that they're closing uh, about 20% of the stores. I don't, I don't think they've said which stores particularly they're closing, but they're closing about 20% of the stores. And 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 again, that that's going to kind of be the pattern out there. And we've done this is we as we try to figure out where we're going with coronavirus and the ways we try to at least at the beginning 
The goal, of course, was to flatten the curve, to stop the hospital system from becoming overwhelmed. And, and then when that didn't happen, which is a very, very good thing, then it kind of switched and we moved into the concept of, well, we want absolute safety. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want people to risk getting sick, which is a much more difficult sort of, of situation. But now we are starting to open up. Some counties in Wisconsin largely open. Other counties still have a lot of the strangleholds on, like in Dane County. They've got these extensive guidelines, and who knows when businesses in Dane County are going to open up. But in general, the country is starting to open up, the state is starting to open up, and a lot of communities are, are starting to open up. All right, here is the question. If and when you have COVID-19 flare-ups like you will, what happens next? Let me explain. The, the, the disease, as I have been arguing, the disease isn't going anywhere. I mean, if COVID-19 is going to be with us, people are going to be catching it. Now, hopefully... You know, a lot of us are smart, and we understand the social distancing, and we understand the need to wash your hands and, and not, you know, get into close proximity with, with other people and things like that. But the truth is, until there's a vaccine and or, and or a therapeutic, people are going to get sick. They're, they're going to get it, and it's entirely possible that there may, in certain communities, be, be spikes that, that occur, like... For example, um, you had the spike in the Brown County meat plants. Now, hopefully we've learned a little bit about, you know, how to help reduce the possibility that you're going to have a whole bunch of people in, in one workplace that end up getting sick. But there's no guarantees. I mean, there, there's no guarantees, and I think it is inevitable as we move on that you're going to have people that continue to get sick and that there might be surges in in numbers. That's one of the reasons that I've been saying for the last couple months, and, and everybody's been putting target dates on, saying, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to open this up on June 1st, or we're going to open this up on May 26th. And my point has always been, well, what's going to be different, you know, a, a week from now? What is going to be different a week from now or two weeks from now? The truth is, you're going to have people testing positive for COVID-19. That's just the reality. And as we do more testing, you're going to have more people that, that are going to be testing positive, hopefully a lower percentage. But, you know, we've gotten to a point where we, we've got lots more testing capability, which is good. We've got lots more of the, the PPE. We have avoided overwhelming the, the medical system. we got plenty of hospital beds that are around, and we have all this unused capacity. But we're going to have surges in numbers. That's just, that is just the reality. And we might even have a large surge in a number. Here is my question that I would like to discuss. What happens next? Will Americans submit to a second lockdown? Can we go, let us say, and I, and I hope this, this doesn't happen, but let's say three weeks from now, four weeks from now, you, you see a, a spike in, in COVID-19 numbers, and, and maybe it goes back to the, where it was, I don't know, three weeks ago or, or something like that, and, and you see a spike in that. You know, do you think we as a community, we as a state, we as a country, are willing to go back to, for example, all the different businesses that we told, okay, you've got to close and you, you can't open, etc. Are we willing to go back to another sort of general lockdown that we're going to close 
all the non-essential businesses again, and we're going to keep them closed, or we're going to take all the restaurants and we're going to close all the restaurants. Is that genie out of the bottle? Can we go back? Will people support a second major lockdown? Or do we have to, moving forward, move to Plan B? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think, candidly, that, that our elected officials need to be starting to think about Plan B. Because I, I don't think we can put that genie back in the bottle. I don't think, even if there is an outbreak or increased numbers, I don't think people are going to put up with saying, okay, we're going to go back and we're going to close all these businesses. We're going to just across the board, we're going to shut this down for, you know, another two or three months. I don't think people will put up with that. I don't think politicians, to the extent you can even legally do it, will will do that. I think what they have to do is figure out a more targeted sort of approach. But that's just me. Will people support a second lockdown if if you see a spike in numbers, like I believe you inevitably probably will, at least in some areas. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If we accept the premise that that people will continue to contract COVID nineteen for the foreseeable future, and and I think that 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 is just in, inevitable. The disease isn't going anywhere. Are will the people will the public support a second? lockdown like we're just coming out of in the last two months i i think i think it's going to be a difficult sell at least for a general lockdown ryan and oconomowoc ryan you're on wtmj hey jeff thanks for taking my call yes sir um yeah i i th- i think we really need to let the um the hospitals and the medical professionals be our barometer uh for this now because i think like you know my understanding of it was right we're flattening the curve we're getting ready making sure we have all the necessary testing and you know, everything that the hospitals would need. So now we open up um, and people are going to get sick. But if, as long as the hospitals can handle it, then I, yeah. I say yes. You know, if, if they try to close, us down, close it down again, that would be a terrible thing. But if the hospitals get overwhelmed, then as a community, I think then we have to pay attention and, and say, you know, it might then be time to do another one. It might be a hard sell. But, I mean, it's right. a, it should be a very, like, black and white thing at that point, I think, you know? Okay, and when we talk about, like, like a shutdown, statewide, mm-hmm. countywide, citywide, what, what do you think? Oh, I, I would think it would have to do with communities, you know, very, like, yeah. like surgical, yeah. you know, go, go by counties or, you know, go by hospital regions, yeah. so to speak, you know? So if an area like Milwaukee just gets overwhelmed, well, then that area is going to have to be, you know, we have to we have to take care of those areas. So statewide, right. though, I think you know, I think we're good. But but I think that you know what it was meant to do is get all of the hospitals and everybody ready to accept this second wave. I mean, that's that was my understanding of it, at least. You know, so yeah, no, and I th- no, thanks for noticing. I, I I agree with you. I mean, I, I think I, I think that the, the idea, and, and let's put aside the, the state 
the, the Supreme Court decision or whether the, the governor can you know wave his magic wand and, and apply the statewide thing. I, I think you're exactly right. The, the way we went into this originally, first of all, there's a lot of stuff we didn't know about COVID-19, and, and there was a lot of really scary stuff that was out there, and you saw the pictures from what happened in New York while they were trying to figure it out, and, and thankfully that never happened here. And, and that's a very, very, you know, that's a very, very good thing. And, and part of it might have been the restrictions. Part of it might be that, you know, people are just, they, they, they get it, the social distancing and all this type of stuff. But I, I think you're right that the whole justification initially was flattening the curve, making sure the hospital system doesn't get overwhelmed. And I, I think you're exactly right. Unless you have an outbreak, which is, and, and we have not come close to having our hospital capabilities overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, you might be able to make the argument that, um, and it, it's a good thing to the extent that it hasn't been overwhelmed, to the fact that you know, a lot of people have been delaying other needed medical care, or the hospitals you know, closed down other services, um, so you wonder what the net effect was to public health. But, but again, everybody was operating in good faith. But I, I think I'm with you. I think it would be a very, very tough sell, absent Oh my gosh, you know, we've had, we're just overwhelmed now that we never were in the past. And I also agree with you that I think in those situations, you've got to be looking at more a regional sort of approach than saying, all right, there's almost no cases of coronavirus in Eau Claire or La Crosse, and you've got another huge outbreak that's spread across the community in Milwaukee. Is that a justification for closing down the whole state? I think that would be a tough sell. 855. 855- 616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. James in Milwaukee. James, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. How you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Well, I think we're going to see aftershocks like you see uh, on earthquakes and stuff like that. You're going to see aftershocks on this whole thing, and it's not going to, you know, but I think, like you said, uh, like hot spots like Madison or Milwaukee or certain areas that we can't shut those down and leave the rest of the state, the rest of the areas that are not, having any, uh, uh, what do you want to call the repercussions or anything else like that, uh, open and stuff like that. And I think if we do that, I think we'll, we'll, our economy and everything else in our state will flourish. But I think if we do another one of these type of things and shut it down because we figure that it, we're going to flatten the curve and we're all going to be kumbaya, we, 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 we want to wait till everything is all healed up and all everything else, I don't think so, Jeff. I, I think that that's going to really wreck us. You've got one out, of ten, one out of ten people right now that are unemployed. Yeah, no, it, there, it takes a call, James. No, it, it's, it's huge. I just, see, I just don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle. I, I just, I don't. I think that what, what's going to happen is, and, and I, I think you can learn something from what's happened over the last couple months. Now, now again, I, I don't attribute bad motives. There's some people out there. I, I, I truly know bad motives. We're trying to wrestle with this, and you're always trying to prevent the worst-case scenario. And thankfully, we didn't get close to the worst-case scenario. But the reality was the state's always going to have to – it was always going to start opening up. The country's always going to start opening up. And I guess I don't see how you can say to these businesses that we've had closed for the last two months that are now just starting to open, hey, we're, we're going to make you close again uh, business in, in Dodge County because – all right, you, you had an outbreak of COVID-19 at a meat plant in Brown County. That That's not going to happen. Now, it might be you want to target stuff saying, hey, no, we've got a problem in Brown County, so we want to be surgical about dealing with this. But I, I just I don't think there's going to be any political will to to try to close down on a massive level the, the state. And, and hopefully we won't need to do that, recognizing, again, that you're going to see the headlines 
You're, I mean, they're, they're, they are already written. You, you know that there's reporters and there's editors, and, and they're out there, and they're watching these numbers. And in the number, especially as you do more testing, I mean, I have no doubt that the number of COVID-19 cases are, are going to increase. Hopefully, they're not going to increase to such a level that it overwhelms, again, the healthcare system. But short of that, I just it's, it's a, it seems to me it's a tough sell to say, okay, we're going to put everybody again in a quarantine. I just I don't see how – it's kind of like when we opened up gambling in the state. You know, once, once you started with gambling, it was tough to put that genie back in the bottle. The states that have opened up pot for – made it, you know, legal to sell pot – I, they're not going to go back. It's just it's one of these things that, you know, right or wrong, you can't go back. With the quarantines statewide, I just don't see how you're going to be able to make that happen again. All right, let's talk to Dave in West Dallas. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello there, Jeff. What do you think? I feel that uh, maybe open up things uh, slowly but have a lockdown on certain areas of the state. Yeah, well, th- thanks for calling. I'm sorry, we're getting feedback. You're hearing me in the background. Well, um, the, the the state is opening up gradually. I guess my my issue is, you know, what's going to happen moving moving forward, and absent absent some major, and I, I'm I'm talking about, you know, major point to the fact that the hospitals are overwhelmed and our capability of dealing with this is overwhelmed. I just don't I don't see. I don't see the general public tolerating, you know, the, another type of, of shutdown. You know, in, in part because, and we did a story yesterday about how the, the homicides in Milwaukee are through the roof, and a lot of it's domestic. I mean, there, while we have been concentrating on COVID-19, completely and totally appropriate, got to recognize there's been all sorts of other things that we've not been paying attention to, whether it's certain mental health issues or, as we've talked about before, you know, the hospitals pretty much shut down. You know, hospitals and, and medical providers have pretty much shut down in order to, you know, make arrangements to and preparations to deal with COVID-19. And thankfully, again, around here, that, that hasn't materialized. You know, that hasn't materialized. But what about all the people who've been deferring or delaying treatment, um, who, who haven't, you know, been going to their regularly scheduled doctor's appointments and stuff? I mean, there, there is going to be a balancing. So I, I do think that once we reopen... What you're going to see is it's going to be very, very difficult to close us up in general terms again. And I think that's that's probably good. Hopefully we've learned something from the last couple months as we move on. But don't don't kid yourself. There's going to be spikes, you know, and and, and hopefully people won't freak out when you see that the numbers go up one week or go down another week because, you know, coronavirus isn't going away anytime soon. We have to figure out how to manage the risk and how to live with it. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.